Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Viral, a podcast series looking at the spread of COVID-19 as it continues to affect Ireland and the international world in a growing capacity. On the podcast today, we look at the future of education in Irish schools and the importance community has had to play so far during the coronavirus pandemic. In Ireland, in something of a national embarrassment, we have the largest primary school classes in the Eurozone. Many of our primary classrooms are overcrowded with more than 30 children and our European neighbours have only about an average of 20. And this really matters when it comes to applying social distancing. It's absolutely crucial that the new government deliver on its commitments to address this matter. That was Joe McKeown, Vice President of INTO, Ireland's largest teachers' union, speaking today at the Oireachta Special Committee meeting on COVID-19. Nearly four months since their initial closures, schools around the country received confirmation and guidance on how they will reopen this September, as new Education Minister Norma Burke released a framework on the logistics battle facing teachers, principals and classrooms in the months ahead. To look at what was laid out in those guidelines, we are joined by Deirdre O'Connor, Assistant General Secretary of INTO, who takes us through the various challenges and difficulties that the sector faces in the coming months. We also take a look at what schools will find the transition most difficult and whether our educational services are now more capable of a blended approach to learning since the beginning of the pandemic. Later on then in the podcast, we look at the power of community as Deirdre Garvey, CEO of The Wheel, joins us to speak about the outreach program that they helped coordinate with the Irish Rural Link, responding to meet the needs of over 134,000 cocooners across the island. We also discuss in the chat the impact of the pandemic on people's mental health and well-being, which she feels will be felt for some time to come. Would you mind speaking about some of the main takeaways from yesterday's guidelines that were introduced by Norma Foley, Education Minister? What I would say is, you know, welcome the guidance, you know, kind of the commitment to further engagement. I mean, this is a good start. We'll, you know, kind of be be moving on from here to get, you know, very specific guidance for schools and to give reassurance to people in the school community about going back and welcome the fact that the Minister has said about further engagement with the stakeholders. I suppose the different elements of it then in relation to how to make schools safer for the school community to go through the physical distancing, the cleaning regime, minimising visitors and contacts and all of those kind of elements. Also then to say that like other workplaces, the same measures would be in place, which would be the return to work form, the procedure for dealing with a suspected case, the, the things that still need to be addressed. I think we still need maybe public information campaign for our parents, letting them know what schools are going to be like, advising them about sending their kids back to school. We also need some issues like substitution and support for teaching principals. We need those addressed as well. 
And obviously, classroom density is hugely important in relation to all of these new guidelines. Can you tell me, like, what does an average school class look like in 2020? Are supersized classes with 30 plus people still seen in parts of the country at this day and age? Yeah, I mean, the, the average the average class size is 22. I'll look up the, the exact figure, but it's highest in the in the European Union. Um, and some, some classes are bigger than that and some classes are smaller than that. Some of the bigger classes are in good, decent-sized classrooms where if you moved around the furniture, you would be able to achieve maximum distancing. But there will be particular problems in some schools where you have big classes and small classrooms. And there are going to be, there are going to be challenges there and we're going to have to work through, through some of those. But I suppose the other piece about how classrooms look now is that they do reflect what the second thing that's recommended there, which is children operating in pods in classrooms. So most primary school classrooms now are organised into groups. So children sit together in a particular group. I suppose what will happen is that there'll probably be less interaction between the various groups. But in terms of how classrooms are laid out, I think it does match up with what uh, what is what is uh, what's described in the guidelines. And you'd mentioned pods and bubbles there. Obviously, they were introduced for the earlier sector, and they're probably more strictly enforced. Why wasn't the same logic taken? Well, I think there are two different approaches being taken at primary and, and post primary. I think that reflects the fact that the schools are organised very differently. I mean, children come into a primary school, they go into one classroom generally, and they stay there for the day. They're sitting at their table or they're sitting at their group and on that basis an organised routine for each for each classroom. Very different at post-primary where you have children moving around and going from one classroom to another and dividing up into different groups for different subject areas. So I think primary and post-primary, I think you can't operate the same rules. I suppose at primary level then you have younger children and older children. The younger children, I think there's an acknowledgement in the guidance that younger children and and potentially children with special education needs are not able to practice physical distance and and anybody who has children who are under eight and you know who you know who has a child with special education needs will know that that just isn't a thing but children can be taught routines and they will be taught routines and older children will appreciate those and will be better able to follow particular behaviours that they're going to be taught I mean when children go to school they're taught the routine for coming in hanging up their coat putting down your lunchbox, all of those kind of things. And there's going to be different routines now. And I think children will will be able to learn those routines. And it's going to take time. And it just shows you that schools are not going to look exactly like what they were when the children left on the 12th of March. And at that point then, are we going to see a lot more, I think the phrase has been called blended education over the next couple of months, where it'll be a mixture of in-school and in-class lessons and also work to be done at home, either you know via a Zoom call or else extended homework to be given. Are we set up more so now than we would have been back in March when schools initially closed to facilitate this type of learning? I think there's two parts to that question. One of them is, can we expect that blended learning is going to be a part of the procedure? I think the objective is that we would be trying as far as possible to have open for all pupils and I think that's the hope that the Minister expressed yesterday in as far as possible that children would be going back to school and I think that's really welcome news and what a lot of parents are, are looking we're looking forward to hearing that we're, we're working towards that objective um, I think the second part of your question are schools better set up to provide support for children's learning if children have to stay at home because for example they're in contact with a case or because they're a child with a particular vulnerability I think the answer is we are in a lot of cases we do know that hard to reach children become harder to reach when they're not in Mm. the school building and we are better set up for it but it's obviously not ideal. What happens come September if a child is in contact with a positive case will that then require the entire class to isolate until the result is returned or is there a guideline set for this so far? 
Well, I suppose if you look at what the HSE generally say that if you're contacted by the HSE under the public health advice, if you're contacted by the HSE and told that you're a close contact of a case, then you do have to self-isolate and you have to stay at home and potentially go if you have symptoms and, and have a test yourself. So I think it does stand to reason that if a child in a class or in a bubble was diagnosed with COVID, I think the HSE contact tracing would decide which children were the ones who were going to have to stay at home. So I think that's very much a matter for public health advice. And back before the schools all closed, that was one of the things that we were very anxious to emphasise, that schools shouldn't unilaterally take the decision to close or send children home. But that was really a matter for the HSE. Mm. And is there any further guidance on students who might be immunocompromised or might have respiratory difficulties such as asthma for returning? Is it still going to be the same case for them? Well, again, if you look at the HSE advice about people who are in the very high risk categories, they're the people who are being advised to cocoon. Um, and, you know, those are people who probably have not been out of their houses much for long periods of time or who are very only very gradually coming back into that. And speaking about teachers now and pupils, I think that will be subject to the advice of their doctors and their specialists about whether they should be back in the workplace or back in school or not. I think there are another group of people who are the people, say, for example, who are at risk and who were advised on the HSE website, again, to exercise caution when they go back out into the world. But, for example, in relation to work, those people are just told to maintain physical distancing and to wash their hands. So there'd be people with chronic conditions like diabetes, asthma, those chronic conditions that a lot of people live with. So again, HSE advice would indicate that people like that should be able to participate both in the workplace and in school. At the beginning of the conversation, you had referenced that there should be and there is a need for a public safety awareness campaign from the HSE to guide parents and help this transition run smoothly. Do we know if COVID safety and etiquette will then feature formally, say, on the syllabus once returned? We would always, I suppose, try to teach, you know, we have our social personal health education as part of our, um, as part of, of the curriculum at primary level. Um, I think it would be reasonable to expect that some of that time would be spent in getting children to learn the new etiquette, getting children to learn the new routines, you know, making them aware of COVID symptoms, all that kind of thing. So I think, again, in relation to the needs of children, I mean, primary school teachers are always going to try and meet children where they're at. And I think if that's a need that is there, I think teachers will meet that need in terms of social, personal and health education. I would expect they would. What type of schools are going to struggle most now to implement these new guidelines safely? I think it's going to be the schools with very large classes and smaller buildings or smaller classrooms, potentially maybe older school buildings. I think those are the ones that are going to struggle with the physical distancing. So I think that's one aspect of it. I think there are aspects of all of this which different schools are are going to find difficult. You know, there are schools where, say, for example, the entrance points are quite limited and where they're going to have to look at how parents drop kids off. There are schools that are going to be reliant on school transport and that's going to be an issue. There are small schools with teaching principals who are really going to find it very, very difficult if they have to go in and teach their class and manage all of this other stuff. So I think there are different challenges for different schools. And in what ways are teachers around the country going to have to use the next two months in preparation for reopening? Is there a huge amount of work to be done? Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done by school management and potentially, unfortunately, by, by school principals because school principals have had, I think, a very a very difficult time over the last couple of months, um, you know, leading their teams and, and maintaining contact between their parent community, the board of management, their teachers and, and, and keeping everything running. And I think there will be some preparatory work that will have to be done. There's some physical work that will have to be done in schools. There's, you know, looking after things like hand sanitizers and ensuring that there's hand washing facilities. 
there are arrangements to be made in relation to organising entrance points and exit points and thinking through all of that. Potentially look at how the yard can be arranged to minimise contact between various groups of children. So I think there are physical preparations that will have to be made. The department has organised a, a framework for drawing down um, hand sanitizer, PPE for a very limited circumstances in primary schools. That will have to be managed. But for teachers themselves, I think it's holiday time. They're not interacting with their pupils. And I think, I don't know that the, the ordinary teacher, you know, who's teaching fourth class, beyond the normal preparations or whatever thoughts they might be putting into next year would have to do. And finally, before we finish up, I'm not sure if you've been in contact with many of the teachers within the union, but how are they feeling ahead of reopening now in September, now that we do have a little bit more guidance than we had previously and some plans are in place? Well, I mean, we, we did an extensive consultation prior to, you know, kind of before the schools closed about what teachers were concerned about. And a lot of those concerns have been met. I mean, the biggest concern, I suppose, was about, look, just about seeking clarification. How are things going to look? So we've a better picture of that. Of course, there are aspects of that that some people are happy with, are not happy with. And we'll continue to engage with our members as best we can over the summer. We've a well-developed network of branch officers and our, our local representatives so we be in touch and, and although the office itself is closed, we're always available at info at info.into.ie for any questions that anybody might have and our query team are working and getting back to teachers all the time. So if any members have any questions, we're there to assist them. Deirdre Garvey is CEO of The Wheel, Ireland's National Association of Charities, Community and Voluntary Organisations. July 1st marked the end of their community outreach programme, which benefited over 100,000 people across the country during the lockdown period. I began by asking her to tell us a little bit about what they learned from the project. The Wheel was in the very, I guess, privileged and honoured position to have been asked by the government and the particular Department of Rural and Community Development to assist in the coordination, the mammoth coordination task associated with, I guess, the local community response that was put into place by the government uh, during the the so-called lockdown phase, particularly during the the so-called cocooning phase. So together with our partners, Irish Rural Link, uh, we are both national, I guess, membership and um, network organisations where between us we have thousands of small local community organisations all around the country in every local authority area as our members. So what we learned and what we were able to offer, I guess, society and the Irish government and indeed community organisations and most of all people who are in a vulnerable situation because of the lockdown, we were able to sort of offer a, a contribution which was involving coordinating all of the existing local community and voluntary organisations because the people who are vulnerable already know people in their communities. They already know people in their community organisations. And in one sense, what we did was to offer a community champion in each local authority area that really acted like a, let's call it a a sweeper function, if you can picture in a sports team, like the sweeper role. And the job of that champion was to identify all of the different community organisations and all of the different volunteers working with them and making sure that they were all working with each other and joining the dots and connecting them with the people who needed the help, whether it be the getting the messages, getting the medicine, or whether it simply be dealing with the social isolation. So what we did was we made the existing, I guess, organisations work helped them to work 
together in a more coordinated way so that the great national effort that we've seen uh, was able to happen. What were the most prevalent issues that you did see within the community and were there anything in particular that you, I suppose, did struggle to, to try and help people with because of some of the restrictions that were in place? As the sort of the, the 10 weeks of the full-on lockdown progressed, we saw the nature of the assistance required change because a lot of the people who are champions and our programme helped, these are the people who would never have rung the local authority helpline, who would never have necessarily rung the national helpline that was advertised on the radio. They would have said to themselves, oh, I couldn't possibly, you know, I I wouldn't like to disturb, I wouldn't Hmm. like to ask them. So we had to go through people that they already trust through community organisations and actually find them and actually offer proactively any assistance and any contact. So the, the needs change from the practical, the messages, the shopping, the pension, you know, the medicines. And then as the weeks went by, it was friendly calls. It was signposting to services that were already there. It was about well-being and mental health supports. So what our champions were able to do was to connect those people with the local organisations that deliver a variety of those services and a variety of those engagements and phone calls. And and really reach out to people so that they didn't feel that they were alone and reach out so that, to, I guess, address the anxiety because the nature of the concerns did change as the sort of the 10 weeks went by. And do you feel then that some of the mental anguish that has been caused it is going to be a long-term problem? It's not something that will be swept under the rug in a couple of weeks' time? Absolutely. Our programme is ending. In one sense, you could say that this is just the beginning, the end of the <laughs> beginning in terms of the country, the local authorities and all of the pre-existing, I guess, organisations will continue to exist and and long may they do that. And I think the lessons that everybody has learned is that there's a lot more communicating between the small, the medium and the large groups at local level so that people can know what other people are doing. And I think that's been one of the big wins out of our part of the programme in terms of connecting people who mightn't necessarily, you know, between the local authority and the community organisations and the sporting organisations and the volunteers, the people who mightn't have necessarily known what it is that the other did. Um, And what we do know is really, really clear, and it's coming through from the great and fantastic Alone Helpline as well, is that the social isolation and the ongoing supports needs is absolutely critical. And they are being continued by the government. Our particular element of the programme uh, is not. Uh, our organisations continue to exist and we've all learned from this. But I think the absolutely extraordinary nature of those 10 weeks of, of real full-on lockdown required an extraordinary additional effort of work. And I think what we've been able to do was to work with organisations that already exist and not create new structures and new infrastructure and new overheads, but just to create better and smarter ways of talking to each other. Uh, and I think that was a really valuable addition over the over those 10 weeks. And we've heard, obviously, countless warnings and signals that a second wave or a resurgence of the virus might come about maybe as early as later on this year. How important is it that we show our cocooners and the vulnerable just as much support then as we have done over the last 10 weeks? Well, I think what we what we know is that the programme that we were involved in reached over 135,000 people, right? So those 135,000 people now are on the list, are on the phone number, are on the end of a phone mm. from any number of community organisations around the country. So if and when um, it comes to a second wave, 
in one sense, the spade work, the, the connecting work, in one sense, that investment has been done. So I don't anticipate that these groups and these people, these vulnerable people, will be left, I guess, abandoned or in the lurch. That said, we don't know what's going to happen. We have created pathways and connections and networks at local levels that just necessarily didn't exist before or weren't as strong before as they are now. There's an awful lot more knowledge, information, connection and networked groups and organisations and structures from the local authority to the health services to the community organisations. And they're all working to the same purpose, which is to keep people safe, to keep people well, to keep people strong, um, and to keep people busy and engaged in their communities and not isolated. And I think that's the real leveller of all of this, no matter what sector you work in. You know, um, there was a really shared common goal, and I think that, that that will remain over the coming months. That was episode 34 of Viral COVID-19. I'd like to thank Deirdre Garvey and Deirdre O'Connor for joining me on today's podcast. We will be back next week with more news and info on Ireland's COVID-19 recovery. I'm Ian Doyle. I'll talk to you then. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.